AMU. American Military University is proud to present Protect and Secure. Hello and welcome. I'm Glenn Kosker, your host. Joining me today is AMU faculty member Jen Buchholz. How are you, Jen? I'm doing pretty well. How are you, Glenn? Hanging in there. So, Jen, you've worn many hats in your career, but today we're going to take a look at your experience in criminal justice. Mm -hmm. So today we're going to experiment by traveling backwards in time, and we're going to take a look at how crime scenes were investigated back in the day the 19th century onwards, and especially the kind of tools that law enforcement had at their disposal. I mean, when you think about crime scene investigation today, compared to what it must have been like in the 1880s, when people like Jack the Ripper were at large in London and other types of the first serial killers, it's a lot different today, of course, than it was back then. And that's what we're going to take a look at. Yeah, this will be a very interesting discussion. I agree. I think it will be definitely a very interesting discussion. These days, there's so much investigation that goes on between things like profiling of suspects. We have fingerprints, of course. We have DNA. But all of these things were not available, for the most part, of course, back in the 19th century. So why don't we start there? If I'm law enforcement in the 1800s, the late 1800s, and I stumble across a crime scene, Jen, what do I have? What do I have to go by? What are the tools at my disposal? What are some of the things that that law enforcement officer is going to use? Well, believe it or not, back in the 1800s, law enforcement did have some tools at their disposal, probably more than listeners might think they had. And of course, some of those are pretty rudimentary. And over the decades, law enforcement worked on advancing those tools and technology. But what I can do is give you an idea of some of the more common things that they used back in that time in order to try and solve crimes and investigate crime scenes. So actually, photography was around in the 1800s, and it was fairly common for police officers or detectives or investigators to photograph the crime scenes and then later use those photographs, you know, to try to get clues about the killer. How did they gain entrance? If this was, say, a murder, where did they encounter the victim at? Where was the victim left at? There actually were many clues that they could get from those photographs that could help them put together kind of a rudimentary profile of a criminal back then. Well, that's an interesting thing. Of course, yeah, photography did start to come in in the late 1800s. And I was going to ask you about Jack the Ripper in particular, I've seen those photographs. They're public domain and anybody can look at them. And I look at those photographs and I'm thinking, first of all, ooh. And second of all, there's not much I could really ascertain from looking at them. But what kind of things were the police looking for back then? Well, one thing, they really didn't need a photograph to notice this, but he often disemboweled his victims. And so in their sort of rudimentary profile, they often wondered if Jack the Ripper was a doctor or somebody who had surgical skills because not too many people would know how to properly cut open the stomach of another human being. So that was one thing that they studied from crime to crime and was kind of a pattern that they noticed over the months and years that he committed his crimes. 
In terms of other photographic clues, like I said, where he or any other criminal would gain entrance to a crime scene. Did they leave anything at the scene? How did they leave their victim? What did they steal? What did they not steal? All of those things can provide little clues about a particular criminal. It's interesting you mentioned clues. Of course, nowadays, if a police officer or law enforcement was to go to a crime scene, the number of resources that that law enforcement officer has at his or her disposal today to seek out clues, it was so much more than what they had, of course, back in the 1800s. And we're focusing on Jack the Ripper. And you mentioned how there were some theories about him having some sort of maybe a doctor's background or anatomical knowledge or something of that nature. So do we think or do you think that that was sort of one of the first times law enforcement used profiling? And did they sort of go with that after that? They took that profiling method and sort of used it going forward in other ways. I think it's fair to say that that was probably one of the first series of crimes where profiling was being used, even if law enforcement didn't necessarily realize they were using the art of profiling. They were because they were comparing details from each of his crime scenes and victims in order to try to narrow down their suspect pool. And something else that I thought was pretty interesting and actually makes perfect logical sense is that he probably wasn't like this scary looking guy. He was probably a pretty normal, maybe even a good looking guy who was able to approach these women without them being alarmed, if that makes sense. And so that's just another clue. It makes perfect sense. And of course, that hasn't changed ever, has it? No, not at all. Serial killers ever since that time, usually they're sociopaths. Am I correct about that? And they think that they have a very high opinion of themselves and they're very charming and everything else. And Jack the Ripper probably was one of the first people in history that used that tactic. You can't get access to multiple victims if you are angry or a scary looking person or if you don't have some charm or the gift of gab. You have to have something that puts your victim at ease. And so most serial killers have that skill. Exactly. And I think Bundy is a very good example of yes. a 20th century criminal who employed those tactics. Now, what about fingerprinting? In the 1800s, was there any sort of science behind that yet? So fingerprinting was being used in the 1800s, but not really for law enforcement. It was originally used where people would dip their thumbprint or their thumb in ink and then use their thumbprint as a signature on official documents. It was in the late 1800s that that area of study was transferred over to law enforcement and law enforcement began using fingerprints to help identify unknown suspects who had left their prints at a scene. And then of course, throughout the next century, we greatly advanced the field of fingerprinting. Of course, today we're focusing on Jack the Ripper initially, but there might have been some other tactics that police at the time could have used. Tell me something about Algor Mortis. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but go ahead and tell our listeners a little bit about that. You actually have it correct. So Algor Mortis is the use of a body temperature to help determine the time of death or determine the approximate time when somebody died. And in the 1800s, there was a scientist who discovered that in most situations, the internal temperature of the human body will drop 
at a consistent rate each hour after death. And so that discovery greatly helped investigators in terms of, you know, coming up with an approximate time of death. We can never nail down, you know, she died at 3.52 in the afternoon. That's, that's not how it works. But you have a window of death. And so the body temperature can really help with that. As long as the person is found before their body temperature becomes the same as the environment around them. Once your body temperature is the same or reaches the ambient temperature of your environment, it's no longer really useful. The only thing it can tell us is that, well, the person was not killed very recently. It took time for their body temperature to drop in order to be the same as the environment around them. It's interesting, but of course, that part of the science remains intact today. I mean, obviously, the technology is more advanced. But staying in the 1800s, and maybe thinking about the United States, not too many guns in the UK, uh, in the 1800s or today, in fact. But obviously, in the US, we would be getting into bullet comparison, even back in the 1800s, right? That's correct. That's when that field of study uh, came to light for law enforcement. And again, it was pretty rudimentary. And, you know, it took many decades for them to perfect the field of ballistics, which is bullet to weapon comparison. But they did start that study back in the 1800s. And there was actually uh, one gentleman, and unfortunately, I can't remember his name, but he was the first one who noticed under a microscope that a bullet had a defect in it. And he was able to trace that defected bullet back to the manufacturer. So that was sort of like the first case of bullet comparison. Right. I mean, in a way, what you've just described, where you can see the markings on a used bullet on a shell, is almost as unique as a fingerprint. But that, again, is another crime scene investigation or investigating tactic that has survived. It's still being used today. But the fingerprints, that must have been a huge breakthrough when it sort of went mainstream in the 20th century, in the early 20th century. Now, I believe the first case ever where a fingerprint led to a conviction, perhaps, was back in 1910. Is that correct? That's correct. So tell us a little bit about that. So in that case in 1910, a guy named Thomas Jennings, who shot and killed another man named Clarence Hiller, and as Jennings ran off from the crime scene, he touched the railing of a set of stairs. And that railing had just been painted, so the paint on it was still wet. And he left his fingerprint in the wet paint. And police were able to match the print in the paint to Jennings' fingerprint. And so he was the first case in which a perpetrator was convicted based on fingerprint evidence in the court of law. And was that just coincidentally, just because there was wet paint, somebody came up with the idea, hey, look at that. You get paint on your thumb or your finger and you smudge something somewhere and we can go compare it to the other records. Or was it something that they'd been, obviously they'd been working for a while in the 1800s trying to, they, they weren't quite there yet, but this is what set the ball rolling as far as fingerprinting went. They started to um, fingerprint criminals or suspects at that time after that case, correct? Yeah. I think that's fair to say. It had been in development for a few decades prior, like we discussed a little while ago, but it just took several years for fingerprint evidence to be accepted in courts of law and for the experts to prove that every human being has a unique 
fingerprint. You know, a lot of people were skeptical about that in the beginning. And so there were definitely some uh, obstacles that experts had to get past in order to get fingerprint evidence allowed in court, but they did. It's interesting you mentioned skeptical all throughout history, but particularly the last hundred years, it's there are skeptics for everything. And I can imagine back in 1910, the people at the time thinking, whoa, what if I get brought into this case because my fingerprint looks like that other guy? I can imagine what that's like or what they were probably thinking back then. And it's been the same ever since, really. I mean, DNA, of course, is the quote-unquote fingerprint of the late 20th century. Um, we'll get to that a little bit later. But yeah, I can imagine at the time people would have been skeptical about fingerprints, especially the part where it's individual to every person, because it's true, of course, that even identical twins have different fingerprints. And even today or recent years, there's been mistakes made on that. One of the most famous cases where, unfortunately, our FBI made the mistake was the uh, Madrid train bombings in 2004. They retrieved a partial print off of, I think, a backpack that was left on the train. And the FBI thought they matched it to a gentleman who lived in Oregon named Brandon Mayfield. And he was actually arrested. And then it was the European law enforcement who came back and said, uh, that's not his fingerprint. <laughs> they look similar, but that's not his. Thankfully, that mistake was righted, but Mayfield did go through quite a bit before he was let go. And I think there was probably a civil suit. So we're in about 1910, moving into the 1920s. What sort of happened then for law enforcement? They've nailed down the fingerprinting, kind of. It's not bulletproof, no pun intended. And they've got the bullet comparisons and the time of death. We've got some photographs of crime scenes, perhaps. We, obviously, we've got eyewitness accounts. We shouldn't just sort of skip over that. There's sketch artists. Those have been around for a long time. So by the 1920s, and into the 30s, am I correct in saying that mugshots were introduced as well because the photography got better and the FBI would put posters of their most wanted and that would help as far as catching the criminals instead of talking about investigating them, but what they had as tools to actually go out and catch these guys? Yeah, definitely. As you said, as photography got better and better and photographs became more clear and crisp, the FBI was able. Well, and other law enforcement agencies too, but they were able to use mugshots or other photographs of persons of interest to put out to the public so that people could keep an eye out for them. There's always a running joke that I heard before about how they should have put the criminals' photographs on postage stamps back then. <laughs> and then they would have been better circulated and they would have that would have resulted in catching more criminals, but that didn't happen. I have to ask you this. As you know, I love to watch those TV shows which have a lot of this stuff mm -hmm. in it. You know what I'm talking about. Um, shows like Homeland and CSI is the big one, of course. But those shows, they go to a computer, a lot of the experts on these shows and the scientists or the law enforcement, and all of a sudden they make this match of fingerprints with some... They have a fingerprint and somebody types in a few things and then points at the screen and says... Yeah, here we go. That's him. Does that happen in real life? Yeah, and in under four seconds, too. No, it does not. <laughs> it does not. It does not. I'm sorry to burst your bubble on that one. 
you have ruined the last 30 years of my TV viewing, and I'll never forgive you for I'm it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no. So, okay, so they, there's some poetic license on TV then. That's correct. Obviously, they can't have a show run for 24 hours while they wait for potential fingerprint matches to be returned from the computer. And actually, nowadays, it's much quicker than that. But there is an a international fingerprint database that the FBI runs. and if a print that we cannot match to a person at a crime scene is found, they can scan that print into this database and the computer will bring back potential matches. It's usually around 20 to 30 potentials, but then a human fingerprint examiner still has to sit down under the comparison microscope and compare all the points that each print have in common with each other. And we actually, believe it or not, do not have a national standard for how many matching points you must have on a print. It varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but it's usually in the range of 12 to 15. And so you have to be able to find 12 to 15 unique pieces or um, designs, I should say, in each of those fingerprints that match each other. And then in theory, what's supposed to happen after that, if this first fingerprint examiner claims a match, then a second fingerprint examiner is supposed to come in not knowing the findings of the first one. So we have like a blind comparison going on. And then if the two fingerprint examiners come up with the same conclusion, it's usually figured that the prints are a match. But it's quite the process. It's, it's lengthy and time-consuming. So it's not just pressing a button on a computer or on a laptop? Nope. <laughs> ah, well, I kind of did know that, really, but it does sort of ruin the whole illusion. But interestingly, there are still human beings that look at these things, which is quite an exciting thing to hear in the world of AI that we have now, that there's not some bot that decides someone's fate. There is some people who examine these things still, which is good. I'm glad to hear that we haven't quite got that far along. Not yet. I'm Glenn Kosker. I'm speaking to AMU faculty member Jen Buchholz, and we'll be right back. The cybersecurity field needs versatile professionals to keep up with new and constant cyber threats. At American Military University, you'll acquire vital certifications, foundational knowledge, and the cutting edge skills to protect and defend your organization from harm. Start making a difference in the world of cybersecurity today. Apply now at amuonline.com. And we're back. I'm Glenn Kosker. I'm speaking to Jen Buchholz today. AMU faculty member. We're talking about crime scene investigation and some of the tools that police officers had at their disposal throughout the many decades into the past. We started with Jack the Ripper and those kind of cases, didn't we? And we're now we're through to about the mid-century, mid-20th century. And we were talking about the 1930s just uh, before the break. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jen, after the war, the Second World War, there wasn't too many breakthroughs, but it wasn't really until the 1980s when DNA came in and changed the way everything was examined at a crime scene, correct? Most definitely, yes. And I'll just point out that there was a couple other techniques that developed over the early 1900s. I wouldn't call them necessarily breakthroughs, but one would be analyzing tool mark impressions, like if somebody used a crowbar to pry open a door, depending on the shape of the crowbar and stuff like that, you could actually do some comparison there. 
And then the other one I wanted to bring up is Locard's principle, which basically states that anytime a perpetrator enters a crime scene and makes it a crime scene, they leave something and they take something away. That thing might be that they leave one of their hairs and they take away a carpet fiber, for example, or they leave a speck of their blood because they cut themselves on a window trying to break in and they take away, maybe there's a dog in the house and they get some of those dog hairs on them and those stick to their clothing as they run away. So that was a principle that came into use in the early 1900s. And effectively, it sort of matriculated forward in time to the 1980s and further, because that same principle, of course, it's been used throughout the 20th century. Absolutely. So let's return to DNA. That is basically the silver bullet, the thing that crime scene investigators look for. They want to have it. They want to be able to present it in court. But of course, in the early days of DNA evidence in the 80s, it was a little bit touch and go, just like with the fingerprints that we talked about earlier, 100 years before, people were a bit skeptical about it, weren't they? Definitely. There was a lot of skepticism, a lot of worry about could my DNA be transferred somewhere? Could it have been planted? You know, could it be mistaken for somebody else's? It was just a new technology that people did not really understand. And just to give the listeners a little background on DNA, we all have our own unique DNA profile. DNA is unique to every human being. We can even differentiate DNA now between identical twins. And DNA generally is found at a crime scene. It comes from biological fluids of the perpetrator. So blood, saliva, semen, and sometimes hair. But hair is tricky because you have to have the root ball on the end of the hair in order to get the DNA of the person. So hair is not always 100% useful. Yeah, see, that's another thing that TV sort of brushes over. Oh, look, we found a hair. And then somebody at their magic computer about 10 minutes later comes back with a full profile exactly. of whoever owned that hair. That's and as you just said, there's a lot more science to it than that. Just from a historical point of view, when was the first DNA court case that convicted someone? And what kind of case was that? Uh, the first case where DNA was used as the primary evidence to convict a person was in Florida in 1980, I believe it was 1986. And the perpetrator's name was Tommy Lee Andrews. He had committed multiple assaults and rapes against women. And at the last rape scene, he left semen. And so the forensic lab was able to make a match between the DNA and the unknown semen and match it to Tommy Lee Andrews. And naturally, because his was the first case where DNA was the main piece of evidence, he appealed, you know, trying to argue that it's junk science or it's not well tested, but he lost the appeal. And so his conviction remained. And of course, that brings me on to a podcast that you and I did earlier, which is about catching these criminals who left their DNA evidence at a crime scene, for instance, the 1970s before DNA was part of the process. And of course, now any serial killers listening, probably a little nervous that they might be getting that visit from the law enforcement who has tracked them down via a genealogy database. Yes. Correct? Yes. That is one of the amazing new technologies that's developed since 2018 is the ability to Use open source ancestry databases online to piece together someone's family tree and narrow down 
the likely suspect of a crime. So as you said, serial perpetrators out there, beware, because we're going to get you. That's right. For our listeners, you can listen to that podcast. It's very interesting. It's something that's going to be around for a long time into the future, and it's going to catch a lot of people. It's already caught a lot of people. Since we did that podcast, Jen, which I think was probably about six months ago, they've caught a lot of people since that podcast. Oh, definitely. We're now in the hundreds of unknown perpetrators who have been caught through genetic genealogy. And of course, it's just going to grow. It will. The amount of cold cases, there's tens of thousands of cold cases where if the perpetrator is still alive today, because we have to remember a lot of these crimes took place almost 50 years ago, but if they are still alive, then watch out. Okay, so DNA in the early days, people were skeptics. Tommy Lee Andrews, the person you mentioned, the first person that sort of went to jail. Tell me about what's happening today and what's touch DNA, for instance. Yeah, touch DNA is one of the, I guess, more recent developments. It's been around for in use for about 10 years now, but Touch DNA is literally individual skin cells that slough off of your skin uh, when you touch things. So imagine if you run your hand over like a rough couch cushion, there's going to be several of your individual skin cells that are going to slough off onto that couch cushion. And a good forensic analyst can take that cushion and find those skin cells under a microscope and then extract the DNA profile from them. And so this is also helping us catch more perpetrators because, again, touch DNA doesn't have to come just from your fingers. It can come from anywhere on your body. We shed skin cells from all over the body. So unless you're wearing like a full PPE suit when you enter your crime scene, which most perpetrators don't, there's a good chance of a perpetrator you know, leaving their individual skin cells at that scene. The trick, of course, is finding them because they are so minuscule and microscopic. But we've had some pretty good luck in terms of solving cases through touch DNA. The issue I'll explain about touch DNA is that it's pretty easily transferable. So, Glenn, if you and I meet and we shake hands, um, I literally may walk away with a few of your skin cells on my hand. And then if I touch my couch, I might transfer your skin cells to my couch. So grain of salt, of course, when police are investigating a crime scene and the touch DNA that they find has to make sense in terms of where it is and who it ends up belonging to and stuff like that. But there hasn't been too many issues that I know of with false convictions based on touch DNA. In fact, I don't think I can come up with a single one off the top of my head. That's very interesting. And I'll be honest, I had not heard of that concept and of course, the technology is just going to improve in the coming decades to make that even more accurate. So let's change course a little bit. Staying in um, the later part of the 20th century and the early 21st century and today, of course, cell phones have now become a big part of investigating crimes. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how cell phone data can nab a criminal? Well, cell phones have obviously evolved since the 1990s when they first came out. The so early 2000s is when they became pretty popular among the general public. Most people could afford them by, you know, 2003, 2004, somewhere in that. But we didn't have smartphones then. So back then, really, if a cell phone was seized as evidence, police could look at the call log or the contact list or the text messaging log. But it didn't have 
location information and on google maps photographs all that stuff so we've definitely evolved because now everybody for the most part has a smartphone which is like their own little personal tracker exactly i was gonna say right you know when you're setting up your smartphone checkbox 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 oh i'll check that check that just want to get to the good part where i can you know look at facebook and all that checkbox checkbox and then yeah you're driving around and you're creating a triangulation of your location most of the time Google Maps, if you are opted in, or any kind of the, any maps service that uses satellites and the cell towers and everything else. And of course, that is a huge breakthrough for law enforcement. Yes, because there's a record in your Google Map app showing the places you frequent. Like you said, depending what you're opted in or out of, it may show all of your travels over a certain period of time. My husband and I have map sharing on for each other so that I mean we don't hardly use it but I guess it's it's a safety thing for us in case one of us goes missing we, we can look on our google maps and see where that other person's phone is but that also records a lot of data about where you've been and where you've traveled not that I want to give hints to perpetrators but just having a smartphone on you in general there's a lot of tracking going on now it's not like police can just say oh we think Glenn Klosker committed this robbery. So we're just going to tap into the cell phone network and see where he's at. No, you can't do that. So there are limitations on this. Usually a cell phone is used after the fact or seized or searched after someone has been arrested to see if the information in it matches up with what law enforcement thinks occurred. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there are some civil liberties uh, issues there. There has to be a probable cause and everything else. It is a very interesting topic. It's fascinating to me. You mentioned you don't want to give a warning to perpetrators, but it is a good thing that even 30 years ago, compared to today, I mean, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, perpetrator is not going to be tracked. There aren't going to be cameras everywhere like there are today. There are not cell phones or smartphones and all of that stuff. So if we keep going in that direction, we keep making it harder and harder for the perpetrators, it's a win-win. And hopefully that's the direction that we will keep going in to make it harder for the crimes to happen in the first place. And there's one famous, infamous serial killer that was caught using digital means, so to speak. And that is Dennis Rader, also known as BTK. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about him and how he was caught? Yeah, that's an interesting case in terms of how he was caught. He was caught in 2005. So he might have had a cell phone, but actually that's not the digital device that led to his capture. What happened was he was communicating with law enforcement, believe it or not, through the local media. And he had asked police if they would be able to trace a floppy disk to a certain computer if he sent this floppy disk to them. And naturally, they said, no, no, we don't have that technology. We can't do it. So he sends this floppy disk. And within a few minutes, I think, they looked at the metadata and traced it to a particular church computer. And then they looked at the church roster and were able to ascertain that a person named Dennis who was also the president of the church congregation, had used this disc. And so they coupled that with footage of the person who dropped off the floppy disk driving a black Jeep Cherokee. And wouldn't you know, when they showed up to Dennis Rader's house, there's a black Cherokee sitting in the driveway. 
he very much slipped up, obviously, and had too much trust in police. He actually asked during his interrogation, he asked the police officer, why did you lie to me about the fluffy disc? Go as on. if like <laughs> as if he was like shocked that they wanted to catch him, you know. <laughs> well, this has been a very interesting conversation, Jan. Now, I'm sort of a a history buff. I love all of the criminal shows that focus on the past. So let's pretend here for a second that I'm the police officer in, say, 1890. You're the police officer now. We go in a time machine, you do, and you go back in time, uh, but you bring all of your tools and your resources and everything that you have that you could possibly use with you. But I'm stuck there in 1890 with my Bobby's hat on in London or whatever. And where you go to the hotel room and we find this dead body and there's a little bit of blood here and there. And there's a little bit of blood spattering on the wall, perhaps just a little bit. Um, there are some open wounds, not very, you know, you couldn't really tell what they were by looking at them. There's some sort of liquid on the floor on the carpet, those sort of things. If I'm there in, the, in 1890, I go in there and I might have my cameraman with me and he'll take a picture, a photograph, and might get my notepad out and my pencil, take some notes, and then go home and have a cup of tea. Right. You might draw a sketch. You might draw a sketch. <laughs> I might draw a sketch. Right. I might draw a sketch. There might be, if I'm lucky, the person managed to put their hand in some, I don't know, substance and put a fingerprint somewhere. But even then, that's not concrete evidence. But you're going into that same crime scene with me, and I'm quite impressed by you, by the way, because you've traveled through time and it's very exciting for me. But you, you're there and you've got all this stuff. What is it that you're going to use what if with that sort of crime scene when you've got somebody that's clearly been murdered they've got all these different wounds and there's blood and fluids everywhere what's your approach after securing a scene so that you can control who goes in and out of it after that first step photographs are the next one um, you don't want to touch anything until mid-range long-range and up-close photographs have been taken of the whole room of any potential pieces of evidence I will caveat this with, if we arrive and the victim is still breathing, then of course we're going to try to render aid. Assuming that the person is no longer alive, this is the steps that you would take. And nowadays we have obviously such great digital photography equipment, we can get all different types of viewpoints. And in fact, this is something that we didn't really discuss, but we even have cameras now that can provide a 3D look at a crime scene once you take that software back to the computer. So of course that's the best way nowadays to preserve a crime scene, so to speak, so that you can see every little detail that was there. And then, of course, you would have you'd have black lights. I mean, you, you'd be able to see everything in that room with the lights out. Yeah, if you felt the need, if you felt that there, a cleanup had occurred or that there's uh, evidence not available to the naked eye, you can spray what's called luminol, which reacts with certain substances, and then you can turn off the lights and use a black light to see where particular substances may have been left by a perpetrator. Right. So my 1890 self is looking around that room thinking, okay, it's going to take my photographer about 10 minutes to set up even one photograph. You've got your digital phone and you take even, you can take 3D photos of the crime scene. And then of course, there's all the other things that you would have at your disposal the DNA database that you're going to go check later and 
Sure. If we find a weapon that's left at the scene, we can obviously properly collect it and bag it, label it, and then send it to the lab. And hopefully the lab can pull a fingerprint or a touch DNA, or maybe it's a knife and the killer cut themselves in the process. So their own blood might be on there. And obviously back in the 1800s, those methods and analysis weren't available. So we're back in our hotel room here in 1890, and you're there from 2020 because you travel back in time and you see the blood spatter on the wall. And of course, I'm looking at that thinking, oh, is that blood? I don't know. Could be red paint. Let me have a no. Don't know. Who knows if that's blood? Probably red paint. You're not going to look at them. You're going to obviously there are blood spatter analysis that helps solve these crimes. Definitely. And actually, if you were an experienced investigator, even in the 1800s, you'd probably be able to make some deductions based off that pattern of blood in the room. I don't know exactly when blood spatter analysis became an official technique, but I'm willing to bet that investigators who had been to many murder scenes were able to make some deductions back in the day about what the blood spatter meant. But even like you said, back then you wouldn't be able to know for sure if it was blood or red paint. Well, now we can determine that on scene. We have quick tests where you just take a swab and it tells you it's positive or negative for blood. Jan, it's always a pleasure to speak to you. And I hope we can uh, talk on a podcast coming up again in the coming months. The pleasure's all mine, Glenn. And thank you for inviting me back yet again and engaging me in another very interesting discussion. My name's Glenn Kosker. Thank you for listening today. Don't forget, you can always go to our news site, amuedge.com. Until next time, this is me signing off. Stay safe. For more information about our university, visit us at amuonline.com. Thank you for listening. AMU, American Military University.